Uh, last Sunday, I was so excited. I was going to watch uh, some NFL football for the first time this year. I was going to root against the Patriots. Anybody else going to join me rooting against the Patriots? Um, so there I was eating popcorn. I was so excited, and I bit down on a popcorn kernel. And about a fourth of one of my molars just was disintegrated. Um, it hurt very badly. <laughs> the nerve was exposed, so anytime I would breathe in, anytime I would um, try to eat or drink, it just pain rippled through my entire body. And um, last week I shared a little bit about my um, dislike of hospitals. If there's anything I like less than hospitals, it's laying in a dentist office chair. Anybody else? Um, I call the dentist the devtist for devil. Um, so this past week, I got to spend about five hours laying in a dentist office chair, and I'm still not done. Um, so hopefully your week was better than mine over the past week. Um, last week, if you were here, we talked about we're in the book of Acts, and we talked a little bit about that. We're, we've only gotten so far as to get through um, verse 11, but really what we've talked about so far is that um, Jesus had, had died, he had risen again, he presents himself for a period of 40 days, proving that he's alive, proving that he is who he said he was the whole time, and then he tells the disciples, I want you to go and wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait, and I will give you the Holy Spirit. And so they kind of know their instruction, right? They're supposed to go and wait. They're supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait. But then last week they asked a question, and, but the, and Jesus kind of didn't really answer the question. He gives them a different um, question, different answer to a question that they didn't ask. And, and really what he says is, is kind of like, what is going to happen? What is my role supposed to be once we do receive the Holy Spirit? So go and wait in Jerusalem, and I will give you the Holy Spirit. And then the directions for once you get the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so their, their, their challenge is go and wait. And before that, or, or and once you receive the Holy Spirit, after that, your task will be to be witnesses, to tell what you've seen, to tell what you've heard, to tell what you've experienced, and you're supposed to do that with everyone around you. So that's um, a little bit about where we were so far. But then a part of this scripture that we really didn't talk about that much is, is Jesus tells the disciples this, and then he ascends into heaven. And, and if we really stop and think about that, like that you're standing there, you're just standing there having a conversation with Jesus, this guy who died and now he rose again, having this conversation, and then um, the trans, uh, Luke says that he comes down, that a cloud comes down and takes him to heaven. And so I want you just to picture for a second, you're just there talking to this guy who just rose from the dead, you're already kind of flipped out by that, and then a cloud comes down and just takes him to heaven. And uh, then it says, it says, uh, Two men, but I think it's angels, two men stood in white robes and they looked at them. They said, hey, men of Galilee, why are you still standing there? So here's, here's what we're going to talk about today is how did they respond to this situation? So there they are. They've seen the resurrected Christ. He ascends into heaven and they're just standing there. And I think the reason why these guys, these two men, these two angels said, why is it that you are standing there looking into heaven? If, if it's me, here's what probably just happened. Jesus ascended and I'm sitting there like this. Like, did, did, you know, like, I feel like you would just be awestruck by what just happened. So in my mind, they stand there for a couple minutes just looking into heaven. And then at that point, two angels say, why are you standing here? So how do they respond? If you have your Bibles, you can flip open to Acts chapter 1. 
We're going to do verse 12 through 14. We're only going to get through two verses today. There's so much packed into this. Um, So that's what we're doing today. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. And this is what the Bible says. So Jesus said, or uh, two angels said, why is it you're staying there? And then this is what it says. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called, called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let's pray. God, um, I think that there's so much packed into this. And I think that this is a a message not only that we as individuals need to hear, but that we as the church need to hear. So God, I pray that you would help me to communicate what it is that you want communicated. Uh, Even better yet, let me get out of the way and you communicate what you want to communicate. God, I pray that we would uh, hear with, with open ears, with open hearts, and with open minds. We thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let me give you the really fast sermon. I'm going to do a, a real short sermon and a real long sermon. So how do they respond? The angels say, why are you still standing there? Here's the short sermon. They obey and they pray. That's the entire gist of what just happens here. The angel says, why are you standing there? And they obey They go to Jerusalem and they pray. But there's so much more in that, okay? Like, I I think if we're honest, we can look at the disciples and we can kind of almost feel like they're the all-star team for God. And we can kind of be like, wow, this is so cool. They did this and they do all this stuff. And as we're going to get into the book of Acts, they're going to be doing some insane, crazy stuff. And I think that we can almost just kind of have this thing of like, well, we can't do that. And that's just, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they were the disciples and but I think that if we really think back to who these group of people are, these, these, these disciples, now there's 11, Judas has betrayed Jesus, so these 11 disciples, these people are outcasts. These people are often criticized for not getting it. They, uh, as soon as Jesus is captured, what happens? They scatter. Peter's willing to follow at a distance, and, and Peter, who's going to end up being the rock on which the church is built, and what happens with Peter? Peter denies Jesus three times. But this, we, we see them and they, they instantly obey. The, the angels say, why are you standing there? And they, they go to Jerusalem and they pray and we can be like, wow, they are so great. But that's not who they really have been. I think something has happened in their life. They were before, if you really look into the disciples, they were arguing over who was the greatest. That was a regular thing that was happening. Um, you can see that once Jesus is captured and killed, where, what do they do? They go to the upper room and they lock the door. Remember when Jesus... Jesus uh, resurrects and he comes and he presents himself alive to them. They are there with the doors locked. They were people living in fear. And now they're, they're just ready to obey. They're ready just to go to Jerusalem. Something has happened in their lives. They're people who fail off and they're people who were filled with doubt. That's who the disciples were and something has happened in their lives. And now they go and they pray. And again, we can be like, oh, okay, they're praying. Well, yeah, they're the the disciples, right? That's what they're supposed to do. But if you think about them, they didn't know how to pray, and Jesus taught them how to pray. And he said, said, hey, guys, this is is how you pray. You 
Our Father, hallowed be the name. And he, so he teaches them how to pray. On another instant, they're supposed to be praying, and Jesus says, hey, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And so they're supposed to be praying, and Jesus goes, prays, comes back, and what does he find? He finds them sound asleep. And he says to them, no, you must be praying. And he gets up, and he leaves, and he comes back, and they're sound asleep again. We can put it on these disciples that they're always just quick to obey, that they're always um, um, ready to pray, but that's not really who these people are. Something has happened in their life. So um, another time, there, there's a guy who's demon-possessed, and they, the disciples can't cast out the demon, and, and Jesus is asked why, and he says, because some only come out with prayer. If we're really honest and we look at the disciples, I think that prayer is not their first response at their last resort. Does it sound like anybody else? Man, that's, that's me. It's not like, you know, we should pray about this. It's like, okay, nothing has worked. I've tried to do this, and I've tried to do that, and I've tried to do this, and uh, I guess I'll pray. But they obey and they pray, and I think it's because something has happened. Now, um, I think that many of these disciples, we have 11 disciples now, and, and I, I would ask you just for, for fun, don't look at the Bible. In your head, name more than five of the disciples. I don't think most of us can probably do that. It's my guess. And so I think it's going to help us for two reasons, one today and one in the moving forward, um, to kind of go briefly through these disciples, okay? So we have 11 disciples here, and let's talk a little bit about them. What do we know? Uh, Andrew. Andrew's the first one that follows Jesus. What's he do? The first thing that Andrew does is he goes and he gets his brother Peter. And he says, we have found the Messiah. Peter and Andrew are brothers. Peter is the, the rock on which Jesus will build the church. Peter's the one who, who's so quick to have foot-mouth disease, like many of us in this room probably, where he says something, it sounds like a great idea, and then he realizes it was a bad thing to say, and he feels like he should just take his shoe and just insert it into his mouth. But Peter... Peter has courage that some of the other disciples don't. Even when all of them scatter, he follows at a distance. Jesus is walking on water, and Peter says, if that's you, tell me to come walk on water with you. And for a moment, Peter is walking on water as he fixes his eyes on Jesus, and then he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he begins to sink. But Peter and Andrew are, are brothers. They were fishermen. They weren't like uh, seminary graduates. They were just people who fished. Uh, James and John, two of the next disciples, they're brothers. They were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. James and John, um, also fishermen. John is often known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. James will be the first of, the, of the, these 11 disciples to be killed for his faith. He gets sliced, basically sliced in half with a sword. This is James. We go down and we have Philip. Philip, when he sees Jesus, he wants to go and tell someone. He goes and tells his brother, Nathaniel, which is oftentimes known as Bartholomew. What gets really crazy in this is that they have names, they have nicknames. There are some, even as we continue in through the book of Acts, of people who have like four names. And that says this, who's also known as this. And then later it talks about that guy who's also known as this. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do they have so many names? It's confusing. The other thing that you find out is that so many people have the same name. 
It's very common names. Uh, we have quite a few Sarahs that hang out around here, and it was the same type of thing there, is that they had similar names, and so it gets confusing. But um, Nathaniel or Bartholomew, he, he, his brother comes to him, and Jesus says, "When I saw you under the fig tree, and so he begins to follow Jesus. So we so far have three sets of brothers, but then we have Thomas. What do people know Thomas for? Doubting Thomas. And man, he goes down bad, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas. But if you really read, Jesus presents himself alive, and then the disciples hear of it. It's before the disciples see it because he first presents himself alive to Mary Magdalene. He, Jesus presents himself alive, and it says that some believed and some doubted. Um, I think that we often put doubt as this horrible thing. We doubt. We do. I mean, I, there's times I doubt. And I don't think that it's this horrible, horrible thing. Think of one of my favorite passages is when someone says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Um, Thomas goes down as doubting Thomas because he says that unless I touch the wounds of his hands, I will not believe. That's Thomas. He's also um, referred to as Didymus. Didymus means twin. So it's thought that he maybe had a twin brother. Or maybe he just looked very similar to one of the other disciples. But these are just ordinary people. There's nothing extraordinary about them other than they had been with Jesus. But the, just, they're just ordinary people. They're brothers. They have moms, James and John. Remember James and John's mom? She comes up and says, hey, Jesus, can my, my sons, can they sit to the left and to your right? They're just ordinary people with moms and dads, with brothers. Uh, they are um, so quick to not do what it is that they're called to. They're so quick to not pray. It's their last resort. They're just a bunch of idiots like we are. But something has happened in their life. You continue to go on. Matthew, Levi, he's known as both. Who is he? He's a tax collector. In this day and age, when people who collect taxes, they collect what they're supposed to collect, and they collect extra. So they just lie in their own pockets from ripping each other off, from ripping off their people. I bet you that there are people in this room that have struggled with stealing in a past life. Just a group of guys we go down um, and we find out James the Lesser, or sometimes he's known as James the Younger. He's the son of Alphaeus. He, um, why is he called the Lesser? He's, I think maybe he's not known as well as James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that James. Maybe he's shorter, maybe he's younger, but that, that's what he's known as. Um, Matthew and Levi, at one point Matthew is referred to as the son of Alphaeus, and so Matthew and Levi, Matthew and Levi are the same person. Matthew, Levi, and James are brothers. We have um, four sets of brothers, and we have Thomas so far. We have Judas. He also goes as Thaddeus. I don't know, but if, if my name was Judas, and after Judas Iscariot did what he did, I would be going by a different name. Be like, you can call me anything you want to call me, just don't call me Judas. So that's pretty much all we know about him. We know about Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, uh, a zealot is someone who's really uh, zealous for the nation of Jerusalem, for the nation of Israel, um, and so they were trying to overthrow the government. He's a political figure. He hates what's happening in his government. 
and he wants to do something about it. This is a, just a group of people that are really no different than us. They're just as full of pride. They're just as selfish. They're just as hard-headed. They're just as clueless. They are oftentimes without a backbone, just like us. But something happens in their life. They're not, not the only people that they, they obey and they pray. There's also a group of people called the women. Um, in this day and age, women were highly marginalized. Their role was to be in the home, and that's it. It went as far as that if, 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 if a crime was committed against me and a woman saw it, that woman could not testify in court as to what she saw. She was not able to be a witness to a crime. Yet, when Jesus calls people to himself, he does include women to be witnesses of what they've seen about him. And women were a, a hugely important in his ministry. In this day and age, women could not really listen to rabbis and sit under their teaching. Think about Mary, Mary and Martha. Mary would sit and would be listening to his teaching, and Jesus said that she chose the better thing. Martha, she would serve. And so Jesus had women serving and sitting under his teaching in a way that was just out of bounds crazy in this time. But that's who Jesus is. In fact, um, Luke chapter 8, it talks about the women and it talks about several different women. It talks about Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it says that they provided funds for the ministry. Um, these women, something had happened in their lives, and they weren't just sitting at home cooking, and that was it. Something happened. Um, you think of... Jesus, he talked with the woman at the well. He, Mary sat at his feet. He had women following him. He gave forgiveness to women. He healed women. He even gave them the ability to be witnesses. Mary Magdalene was the first person that sees the resurrected Christ. Something happened in these women's life. Mary Magdalene had seven demons Joanna, she was the wife of Herod's house manager. We don't know anything about Susanna. Mary, the mother of Jesus, later at times is referred to also as the mother of James and, and, and others, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, what about the wives of the disciples? We know for sure that Peter was married because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. The worst miracle of the Bible. I'm just kidding. 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 The best miracle. Um, but we have this, this situation going on where he heals the mother-in-law. So where are the wives? They might be right there. Maybe, maybe Peter's wife has already passed away. We don't, we don't really know for sure. But, but there's this group of women that are following as well. And so, so these men, these 11 disciples and the women, they, something has happened in their life and the angel says, why are you standing there? And they immediately go and they pray. But it's not the only group of people with him, it's also his brothers. Now there's two different times, there's times where it talks about his brothers and times where it talks about the brothers. 
But that word translated to brothers can mean brother, sister, or a blood relative. So there are some people, um, in fact, the Catholic Church as a whole, I believe, has a doctrine where they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was a virgin forever. Um, I think if you read through Scripture, you can see that there are times where there clearly seems to be referring to um, the brothers of Jesus in an earthly sense. Jesus had half-brothers. So Mary um, has Jesus. She's a virgin. She gets pregnant. She has Jesus, and then she marries Joseph, and she has other kids. Those kids are um, James, Jude, Simon. Jude, the book of Jude. James, the book of James, written by Jesus' earthly brothers is what's believed. Um, these brothers, though, something has happened in their lives because in, in John chapter 7, it specifically said that his brothers do not believe in him. Later, um, Jesus, in Luke chapter 8, the brothers are trying to get to him. His brothers are trying to get to him and his mother, and Jesus says, the people who do my will are my brothers and my mother. So it seems very apparent that the brothers, the earthly brothers of Jesus, they do not believe in Jesus, but something has happened in their life. Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit has not showed up yet. But they obey and they pray what has happened in their life. I would say that they have seen the resurrected Christ. You see, before when Jesus was telling them, like, I'm the Messiah, and I'm, like, I think that they were pretty sure. But when he came back from the dead and they saw him, they were convinced. And I think if we're honest, if there was only two categories of people in this room, we'll say there's three. There's, you don't believe that this, any of this happened. This is just a fairy tale book. It's interesting. You're here because you feel like you're supposed to. It's what you do on, for a family day, whatever it is. So that's one group of people. Second group of people, that you pretty much believe in this. You kind of, like, it seems likely. And then there's a group of people that are convinced. I think what happened is they were convinced. This is true. This is so true that I'm willing to put my life on the line. And so I want to start with just a question for you is, are you convinced that this is true? And just be real about the answer. If you're like, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I think so, just be willing to just say that. And if you are absolutely convinced, be willing to say that. Now, with that being said, doesn't mean that you won't have times of doubt. Doesn't mean that you won't say, I believe, but help my unbelief. But I can tell you this, I am fully convinced that this is 100% true, and there's times where I doubt. And in those moments, I pray and I say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But I think that something miraculous has happened in the lives of these 11 people, these 11 disciples, and this group of women, and the brothers. Jesus' earthly brothers. Because they obey and they pray. And I think these just ordinary men, something extraordinary happens. The short sermon, they obey, they pray. But I think that there's so much more going on here. It's that they begin to do something extraordinary. Extraordinary in, in the in the dictionary is very unusual or remarkable. What do they do? 
it says that they were devoting themselves to prayer. Um, I, I really like ESV translation most of the time, but I really love New American Standards translation of this, that they were continually devoting. Devoting that ING, ing ending, it's a continual thing that's happening, but, but to, I, I, I love that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. I um, have been fairly deeply involved in going to church and being seeing a little bit of the behind the scenes things of churches for 20 years. Prayer is not a normal thing. It's, it's extraordinary when you see a group of people truly praying together. It really is. Um, when prayer is not just something that's done casual, it's not just something for transitions as part of the gathering, it's not just something that you do before a meal, it's not just something you do before bed, it's not just something that the leadership team or the pastor does, um, it's not just on your own, but when the group of people continually devote themselves to prayer, there is something unbelievably powerful in that. And they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, um, the, Jesus ascends into heaven, and he sa- the, the angels say, why are you standing there? And then they go to Jerusalem. And then in Pentecost, which we'll get to in a, in a couple weeks, uh, the Holy Spirit comes. Well, how long of a period of time is that? So let's talk through that just for, for a quick second here. So Jesus dies on Passover. He's the Passover lamb, and so he dies on Passover. Um, Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is also known as the Feast of Weeks, which happens 50 days after Passover, just part of the Jewish calendar, 50 days. So here's what happens. Jesus dies on Passover. He's in a tomb for three days. He comes back to life, and he presents himself alive for 40 days. 40 plus 3, 43 days. Pentecost is day 50 for a period of seven days this group of people is in an upper room devoting themselves to prayer. Um, if I'm in a group of people when we pray longer than about an hour, it starts to feel awkward. Seven days. It's not the only thing that they're doing. They're also going to the temple and they're sharing. That's what the last verse of Luke tells us, that they're also doing that. But, but they are devoting themselves to prayer. I think it's something has happened in their lives and they have seen the resurrected Christ and they know we have no idea what to do. And they are at their end of what they can do and they pray. Um, Sarah has a friend who, who has, a, who has a, um, a child that's really struggling. And um, the parents are, are Christians. They go to church. They, they're good moral people. And, uh, and Sarah's friend was telling her, my husband and I have never prayed together. We go to church, we're Christians, we... They are on their knees praying for their child. Have you ever prayed with someone? Out loud. I think that there's this fear that happens in us. Like, I really don't know what to say, and I'm going to say something wrong, and God's going to get mad and think I'm an idiot. And he, he already knows we're idiots at times. He just wants us to realize it and to be real with them about it. But when you pray with someone, there is something powerful that happens. 
And this group of people, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They saw their need for Jesus. They were repeatedly, ongoing, faithfully, steadfastly committed to getting on their knees before the Lord. Um, I think that that's an extraordinary thing that has happened in their lives. Second extraordinary thing that, that happens is they pray in one accord, not a Honda. Man, guys, that was the best joke I have ever told here, <laughs> ever. I mean, I, I told Sarah the other day, I was like, I got the, I got the best joke. And, and she just looked at me like, why is that funny? So there's cars called a Honda Accord. Can you, picture, can you picture these 11 guys plus all these women and his brothers all in one car praying like a little clown car? I mean, come on, guys. <sighs> I give up. I end my career of comedy. They're praying. Amen, yeah. yeah. First amen I got all, all month, right? Ugh. They're praying in one accord, not a Honda. What does it mean to pray in one accord? They are together in unison. They're agreeing with each other. They're praying with one voice, without division, fully aligned as one unit. If you don't think that that right there is extraordinary, then you have never been around a group of people. You know what I've found is so often we spend so little time praying. I'm throwing myself in on this hardcore. We spend so much time praying and so much more time talking because we're trying to convince each other of what we believe rather than just sitting and listening to what he believes. I'm guilty of that. If I can just win people over to my point of view, they'll see, and guess what? Who's trying to be in control? Who's trying to be in charge? Who's trying to be the head? It's me. It's everyone else who's doing that same thing. But what is happening in this group of people is they are praying in one accord. Do you know what? Pride is the absolute enemy of this. As long as we think that we know the answers, we cannot pray in one accord. As long as we are not just fully humbled, we cannot pray in one accord. Do you realize that, that um, on almost every issue in life, there's two sides of a coin? And all of us err on one side or the other. We just do. Let's use grace and truth. There's people in this room that if somebody's really struggling, you want to be like, oh, they need grace, and, and this happened in their life, and this is so hard, and we just need to love on them. And then there's another side who says, well, it's wrong. They're idiots. you know. And, but when you're in a group of people praying in one accord, those two things sharpen and, and, and cause something to happen where you come to the middle ground, which is probably where we were supposed to be in that first place, of understanding that it's both. We, we have to speak the truth in love. But when we pray together as a group in one accord, it is this beautiful, extraordinary thing. And you have this group of 11 guys that all struggle in totally different ways. You have these group of women that have these different thoughts, that have experienced life in a far different way than what these guys have. 
And you have the brothers who, who grew up watching Jesus grow up. And you have this group of diverse, unique, ordinary people on their knees together and doing something extraordinary, praying in one accord. Back to my broken tooth. I got to lay in a dentist chair for about five hours this past week, like I said. And I am so mad at God that I'm going to say this. I'm thankful. Let me tell you why. As I'm laying there, the dentist is working on my tooth doing a root canal. It's fantastic. I highly advise people to get one. As I'm laying there getting my root canal, the entodontist is sitting here. His assistant is sitting here. He's doing all this stuff, and he says, I don't know what he's talking about, but he's like, give me a 22. So she hands him something, and he's doing something in my mouth. And, okay, now I need an 18. And, and then all this is happening. Guess what? I, as I'm laying there, I realized they are working on me in one accord. This doctor has two hands and two feet. He's operating the little, the little break-my-teeth-apart tool with his foot. And then he's taking his hands and jabbing this thing all the way down into the root of my tooth. But at the same time, he is also preparing for the next tool that he needs by his assistant. And I saw this beautiful thing. They were working in one accord. Rather than him having two hands, two feet, he had four hands, four, four feet. Because guess what would happen is she would get up and go over and get something and come back. And if he had to stop every time he needed something to work on me, then it would have taken so much longer. They were working in one accord. And then I, I got done and I walked up to the receptionist desk. The same lady who, who checked me in and then who, who walked me back. And she's taking my card, charging me a huge amount of money and shoving it in the machine. And then, and then she's handing it back and then she's writing down on the receipt and handing it to me. And so it wasn't just four hands, four feet. It was six hands, six feet. And then I'm looking at the lady who's answering the phones. She's answering the phones, taking appointments, writing them down, getting up, walking it over, putting it on the book, and she's coming back. They, this office was functioning in one accord. But you know what I realized? As I was laying there, the dentist assistant did not tell the doctor he was doing it wrong. She was following his lead. She did not try to be in charge. She knew her role. She knew her place. And she knew who was in control and who was in charge. The lady who was charging me, it wasn't like she was like, yeah, I'll take that in cash. And she put it in her purse. She took it, she paid it, knowing that she's going to pay it, that's going to go to the dentist, the dentist is going to pay her. You, I saw this beautiful picture of this dentist's office functioning in one accord. That is what beautiful, amazing prayer is, is when there is a group of people who know who the head is. They know that it is Jesus that is in control, and they humbly come before him fulfilling the role that he has called them to play. It is not 
the receptionist trying to be in control and trying to tell everybody this and that. And it's not the ta person taking the phone calls who says that they're the most important person in this office because if I don't make the appointments and you can't do the work, they all realize they're on the same team. You know what their team is? Their team is they don't want people to be in pain and they want to fix their teeth issues. What would it look like if we as an ordinary group of people, if we did something extraordinary? And if we truly viewed Jesus to be the head of this church, and we, in one accord, all climbed into that little black Honda Accord, it's out in the parking lot, and we prayed for his will, not for ours. For his leadings, not ours. For the way that he wants all of this to look. What if we as husbands and wives, we pray in one accord asking God to raise our children the way that he wants them, that we would be willing to just prepare, be, be a, a, a teacher as best we can to guide them the way that they are to go? What would it look like? They were in one accord praying Ordinary men, ordinary women doing something extraordinary. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer, and they were in one accord with him at the head. My hope, my prayer, is that we as a church, that you as a family unit, that you would truly continually devote yourself to prayer in one accord with him at the head. My prayer is for that, a same of that for us as a church, that we would want his plans, his power, his leading for the purpose of making his name known. Uh, here, there, and everywhere. And we would commit ourselves to that until he returns. Um, that is what we are called to do. Um, they're called to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, at the ends of the earth once they received the Spirit. And they didn't know what to do until then, and so they prayed. When ordinary people do something extraordinary, I think you see extraordinary things happen. Let's pray. God, I um, confess that I am so quick to just accept ordinary. I am so quick to think that I have the ways, I have the plans, I know um, what this means or that means, and God, I am uh, filled with pride. Every single one of us in this room is. And God, the only way that we can be together in one accord, the only way that we will see extraordinary things happen is if we get off of the throne and we put you in your rightful place on that throne. So God, I pray that you would humble each of us in this room and that we would see you on the throne that you deserve. God, we ask that through us as ordinary people doing that extraordinary thing that we can do only through you and only through the power of the Spirit that we would see extraordinary things happen in our families, 
in our house churches and in this church as a whole. I pray that in the name that is above all names, that's the name of Jesus. Amen.